Yo, welcome to Simply Bitcoin IRL. I when I started uh, when I hold, when I started making Bitcoin content, I originally started with uh, just doing interviews, and it was a lot of fun. And I stopped that for a while just to just to focus on the show. And I started doing panels, of which Jeff was a part of a couple of them, um, or the the first one that I did, and I enjoyed it so much. I'm like. Why did I stop doing interviews? So I'm bringing that back, and my first guest to do that with is the legendary, the one and only, Dr. Jeff Ross. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing awesome, Nico. How you doing? I'm good, man. Pretty tired. Uh, another day doing uh, shows back to back, even though it's been a whole lot of fun. And uh, I've seen you've been quite quite active on Twitter. I am causing trouble, you know. Just getting out there, getting the word out, gives me something to do. So, Doc, I, I don't think we've ever sat down, you know, we've always like had conversations basically on the show or, you know, on the panel. So it's a little bit more, you know, rehearsed to have to prepare, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I never got to know what your Bitcoin journey was like. I know that you're a doctor, you retired, you had your hedge fund. So... If you can give us a quick synopsis. <laughs> sure, sure. I, I like telling it because there's a lot to learn from it. I made a, a lot of stupid mistakes, so I, I you know, like to get into it. So I first got into Bitcoin probably 2015, maybe 2016, somewhere in there. So back at uh, back in the day, I was a pretty wealthy doctor uh, and I, you know, and I was paying attention to lots of different markets. I've always been kind of into macro, different asset classes. So stocks, bonds, commodities, currencies real estate uh, and then and then along comes Bitcoin and all of the offshoots of Bitcoin, the crypto world. So like most people, and I still see people doing this a lot today, um, first, first you get into Bitcoin, right? And then you see the shiny objects over there and you see like, wow, I'm making nice returns, but look at what those people over in crypto land are making. And so I got sucked into all this other stuff, right? So, you know, Litecoin, uh, Bitcoin Cash, all this other stuff. And and I like to always, first of all, two, two, two disclaimers. One, I didn't do any of this with my Veilshire accounts or Veilshire clients. This was just me on my own. So I like to, to say that. So I wasn't stupid with my client money. This is just me experimenting on my own. Two, um, this is before Bitcoin Twitter, before I had any sort of um, education or community regarding Bitcoin. And so back then, I didn't know who was going to win uh, the, the, the block size wars, basically, you know, so there's a big argument going on, like, Hey, you know, should, should we, you know, increase the block size, blah, blah, blah. And, and I don't have to rehash all this stuff. I didn't know who was going to win personally. So I was of the opinion as uh, an, a traditional investor, like, Hey, I'm just going to own a basket of these things. So I own, you know, some Bitcoin, I own some Ethereum, I own some of lots and lots of other altcoins back in the day. I had no idea what was going to win. I thought it was all kind of cool. Didn't really understand any of it. Um, that's how I was. But the, the funny thing was then versus how it is today, back then everything was paired with Bitcoin. So if you wanted to buy, say, Ethereum or you wanted to buy Litecoin or you wanted to buy Bitcoin Cash or Monero or whatever, you had to literally sell your Bitcoin to buy these other things. So usually I would you know, take cash, buy Bitcoin with it, then take Bitcoin and buy these other things with it. So long story short, this is all kind of 2015, 2016, 2017. We had that massive run up that everybody knows who, you know, who paid any attention to this space. By the end of that run, kind of in the second half of 2017, I had sold all of my Bitcoin for all of these other altcoins. Uh, and so then comes 2018, 
and the crash happens. And as we all know, it was crazy, right? It was terrible. Um, most of the altcoins that I own dropped 90 to 99% from their highs. And kicker number two was I had a huge tax bill for the trades I had made in 2017. But now my net worth had gone from here down to here uh, because of that, at least my crypto related net worth. That was two and three. And most importantly, I was literally left with no Bitcoin. I had sold all my Bitcoin. So I had zero Bitcoin, a bunch of altcoins that had dropped 90 to 99%. And third kick in the butt, I, I paid a huge amount of taxes. Okay, so that was an, an, a really good lesson learned for me. That was 2018. I kind of just forgot about the space for several months after that. Late 2018, early 2019, I finally started studying Bitcoin. I'm like, you know what? This is different. There's something about this. And, you know, we had these these blockchain wars. Uh, Bitcoin seems to be winning because it keeps kind of taking market share from the other imitators. And by the way, most crypto are not uh, imitators of Bitcoin. They don't have anything relevant to do with Bitcoin. The things that do have um, that we should be comparing Bitcoin to, at least in the crypto space, are the knockoffs. So the Litecoins, the Moneros, the Bitcoin Cash, those kind of things, those proof of work commodity money things that basically who's going to win in the market will decide who's going to win. I think by now it's clear to basically anybody except those people who are very biased because they're heavily invested in these other things. Bitcoin has clearly won. It just it is the money. It's the it's the magic Internet money. It's it's where the society is going forward with in the future. Um, all of the rest of crypto is 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 totally separate from that has nothing to do with sound money. OK, so that so that's where we are. Went down the rabbit hole early 2019, read Safedine's book. That's what finally like pushed me way over the edge. OK, so now I like I, I get it. I get that Bitcoin is like the apex money for humanity. You know, everything that gold was, gold did a commendable job at being a stable store of value for several thousands of years in the analog age. But now we're in the digital age. Why is that relevant? Because we couldn't create a more perfect money until we got into the digital age. So, you know, there's the analogy that Bitcoin is like digital gold. It's way better than gold. It's it's 10x, 100x better than gold in many ways. Uh, we don't really have to get into that. But the properties of money, Bitcoin just excels in, in every one of those things. The only thing it doesn't have yet is a really long history. Uh, but we're working on that, right? So since 2009, we're 13 years into it. Uh, it's going to be with us for a very, 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 very long time, long after I'm dead, Bitcoin will still be around. Um, so that's my story. That's how I got into Bitcoin. It took me a long time. I like to say I was the class of 2016, but I got held back to 2019 because I was stupid. Uh, and I think a lot of people share that story. So that's kind of why I like talking to people when I see people who start in Bitcoin and then divert down to into the crypto world. I shake my head. I plead with them. I'm like, please, please, please don't do this. And then I'll say something like, you know what? You could, It's a free country. If you want to speculate in that other garbage, go for it. You know, whatever garbage you want to speculate in, that's awesome. Um, but please, please, please save in Bitcoin. Because if you don't save in Bitcoin, you're eventually going to get wrecked and you're really going to regret it. I think not owning Bitcoin is the biggest opportunity cost of the literally not just our lifetimes, but like of all of humanity, like there's never been a more critical financial error than not owning Bitcoin for the long run. So that's my story. Uh, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, but it gives me a real heart for people that I see kind of stuck over in crypto land. They're going to get wrecked at some point. Um, you know, I'm always begging them. And then I hope that they remember when they get wrecked that they're like, oh, yeah, Dr. Jeff said. I should have saved in Bitcoin and I should have taken his advice because, you know, Celsius went down and, you know, Terra Luna went down and or Voyager went down and I lost 
everything or most of everything. Dang, you know, so lesson learned, time to pull up your bootstraps, get up and get back into Bitcoin and start understanding why this has literally changed the world technology. Crypto has nothing to do with it. It's just a completely different. All it is, is it's just it's literally venture capital that's awkwardly glued to a blockchain and focused on an exit strategy with a good marketing team. That's what crypto is. Bitcoin has changed the world technology. Uh, that's why I've kind of devoted the rest of, you know, my, my career to Bitcoin itself. And, um, it, you know, it gives me something to talk about on Twitter. It gives me something to talk about during these conversations. So that's my story. Man, now it's crazy, Dr. Ross. We are from the same year, 2016. Is that right? Um, yeah, fascinating. Um, Were you smarter than me, though? Did, or did you do the same kind of stupid stuff I did? It's not that I was smarter than you. It's that I got into Bitcoin through mining. So I always had a deeper appreciation for the infrastructure. And I always knew that altcoins did not compare because I wasn't looking at it from the way that most people look at it. They get into Bitcoin, they're like, this thing's slow. Uh, this thing doesn't have this functionality. That doesn't mean I didn't dabble in shit coins. I got totally wrecked in 2018, but I still had the majority of my portfolio at the time, you know, saying portfolio is weird, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Nowadays, but you know, back then, that's the type of thinking that you had. Um, I was, I was luckily spared because of that, uh, somewhat. Um, but again, it's not because I'm a genius, not because whatever. I just, I, I, if you mine Bitcoin, you understand the infrastructure behind it. But I also got very terrified because there was a point during the fork wars that artificially they were able to raise the um it was all they were burnt they were literally lighting money on fire but they were able to surpass the bitcoin hash rate two or three times and i'm looking at that and i'm like holy crap they're gonna win you know uh because at the end of the day what does the hash rate represent the hash rate represents the amount of computational power you know backing the network and you could make the argument that theoretically that's how that's the that's the, if you want to brute force, you want to uh, rewrite the chain, that's what the hash rate represents. So it's like, that's the value proposition. That's the way that I'm looking at it. And there was two or three times where the Bitcoin cash hash rate suppressed that. And I'm looking, I'm like, holy crap, they're doing it. And that was really terrifying. Um, so, but there was another thing that you said that was, I found fascinating. And I think we're watching not only a country do this, I'm talking about Nayib Bukele and El Salvador, but we're also watching Michael Saylor endure this as well. And it's something that we say many times on the show. Bitcoin spares no one. Everyone has to pay a price of tuition. Even if you are, you know, the president of a country or you're Michael Saylor and just watching Michael Saylor specifically degen into Bitcoin, we all did. The difference is that we don't have you know, billions of dollars in purchasing power. And I find that fascinating. And if you compare that to the old system, right, Michael Saylor would have gotten special treatment. He would have gotten a special price, uh, same as Naim Bukele. And now in Bitcoin, everyone's equal. And I really, really find that fascinating. Yeah. And that's what's awesome about it, right? But it takes a while to figure all of this stuff out. So um, kudos to you for, for figuring it out sooner than I did. But, you know, by the way, just one last tangent on this. This is why one of my pet peeves is when I hear Bitcoiners getting into the trap of comparing Bitcoin to Ethereum or talking about even Bitcoin dominance. And no offense if you do. I just think Bitcoin has nothing to do with crypto, right? Like, again, it's all about better money for the world. So so it's we're challenging the government fiat currency system, 
challenging gold, maybe even you could say challenging these other split offs, the, the hard forks, the Bitcoin cash and all these other, you know, Litecoins and things like that. Bitcoin is clearly going to win that race. And I think the talking about the other altcoin world, crypto world has nothing to do with Bitcoin. So I just think it's kind of a waste of time. I like to focus like kind of head down, build on Bitcoin, educate people about Bitcoin and move ahead. And and we're going to win in the end. Like I have no doubt about that. So um, anyways, yeah. that's how I feel about that. 100%. So I'm, I'm going to pivot here a little bit and we're going to talk about why all you guys came to, you know, see Dr. Dr. Ross, and that is, let's talk a little bit about the economy, what's going on, the recent CPI numbers, inflation, all of that. And let me pull this up because this is a uh, pretty scary stuff. This was the recent CPI announcement, right? Um, of course, we all know they rig it as much as humanly possible, but it's still that bad that it rose 0.1% compared to August. That led to a crash in the markets. One of the big, I think it was the biggest crash since the 2020s, since the start of the pandemic, right? But here's something that people missed, right? The food category is specifically 11.4%. I looked it up, that is the highest since 1979, right? And here's a couple, Nico did his research today because he had the doc coming on. Um, here is the Bank of America Global Fund uh, Manager Strategy. And basically what they do is that they interview a couple hundred panelists and those panelists are fund managers and they have hundreds of billions of dollars under man management. I looked it up, it's a little shy of a trillion, right? And ch take a look at what their expectations are. This is profit expectations and this goes back all the way to 1997. And here's 2022. This is the lowest it's ever been, but also check out this chart as well. This is a small business earnings, right? This comes from, I wrote it down here, the, no, I didn't, I must have deleted, oh, here it is. The National Federal Federation of Independent Businesses. Small businesses are the beating hearts of the US economy, even Nico knew that. And take a look at this, right? This looks catastrophic. So. <laughs> I don't know what Jim Cramer is smoking, uh, Dr. Ross, but uh, this looks bad, man. This looks it looks like we're looking down into an abyss. Like this looks like, uh, and you say this yourself in your tweets, this is definitely a recession. Yeah, I, that's a that's a great uh, lead in to you know most people who who pay attention to the the stuff I, I tweet and what I talk about usually. I, I've been bearish since January. And so people are getting sick of hearing me. I, they, they call me Dr. Bear. I get it. It's, you know, I, and it's hard for me. I got to tell you guys, it's hard for me that you call me that because I'm actually an optimist at heart. I just, I just look at the data and I'm like, it is so terrible out there. And it's, I've been bearish since January. I'm much more bearish than I was in January right now. So it's getting worse. It's not getting better. And we still have a long ways to go. In fact, before this, um, this show, I just tweeted out um, looking at the 10 minus two treasury yield, so the yield curve uh, inversion, and then looked also at the three, the 10 year minus the three month curve, which hasn't yet inverted. Why do I look at that? Because that usually happens a little bit later than the 10 minus two year uh, curve inverts. Uh, and that's usually a little closer to when we actually have a serious recession. So I still think we're kind of in the early days of recession right now. And unfortunately, there's much worse to come. So things look very ugly out there. Small businesses know it. Large businesses know it. All businesses know it. Why? Because what they're doing is they're start, they're hiring. Uh, they're putting freezes on their hiring. 
uh, and they're also, you know, letting go of people. Amazon already let go of, I think, of a hundred thousand employees already. That was that's kind of old news now. But but major businesses are feeling the crunch right now, and it's going to get worse. So the the um, Fed, Jerome Powell, keeps talking about how you know what employment is still strong. And we need unemployment to rise in order to destroy demand, blah, blah, blah. And you know what? He's going to get his wish. Uh, it's going to get worse. And the downside of that, and this is what makes me really mad, is this means real people, real Americans are going to be losing their jobs. They're going to be getting kicked out of their work on their, you know, on their butts onto the street. And they're going to be like, sorry, uh, um, you know, because of this demand destruction, we don't have the business that we thought we were going to have. We need to fire you. And um, that's going to be really rough for people. And the, the unfortunate thing of this is it affects the people who are already really struggling. So people kind of in the lower echelons of the economic spectrum, they already can't afford gas and groceries. Um, try affording gas and groceries when you're fired, too, and you don't have any income coming in. So it's going to get much worse. And um I also like to tell people that, you know, we haven't had a serious recession since way back in 2007 to 2009. And then before that, it was the dot com uh, crash. The, the, the ones we've had since then, these little minor blips, like in 2015, there was a little blip. Late 2018, there was a little blip. We had the blip of uh, March of 2020 with the COVID deal. That was a V-shaped recovery. It came and went really quickly. That is not how this one is going to go. This is going to be like a traditional recession, um, possibly much worse than anything we've experienced, though. Uh, where we may be talking about these terrible economic conditions a year from now. This may still be going on a year from now, and we may not have bottomed in the stock market yet and risk assets as of, uh, at that point. So I just kind of tell people, like, buckle up, be smart. Like, there are strategies you can do as an investor. If you have a, a fiat job, whatever you're doing for work and you're actually getting paid, don't quit your job. Like, this is not the time to quit because you're going to have a really hard time getting another job. So the economic data looks terrible. The bond yields that I look at, the treasury market, they're all signaling that the worst trouble is still ahead of us. We, we are going to see sovereign nations literally default on their debt more than we normally do. Um, and we're going to, I think my prediction is before this is over, we're going to see countries leave the European Union. So European uh, nations are going to actually leave the political union because they just are, they're either going to get kicked out or they're going to leave because there's no way they can afford their debt. Um, with rising rates. I look at the pigs, so Portugal, um, Italy, Greece, Spain, they're the ones that are struggling the most. Keep an eye on those, especially Greece and Italy. Um, they may be kind of the first to have serious problems. And uh, emerging markets, I like to touch on those too. A, a lot of emerging market countries, so these are countries that have a lot of US debt. They rely on the IMF to give them money which is U.S. denominated debt. Now think about their situation. It's it's bad here in America. Think about their countries. They're heading into a recession. They have an economy weaker already than the United States. They have debt that's denominated in U.S. dollars. So their currencies are locally getting weaker and weaker against the U.S. dollar, which is getting stronger and stronger. They have to pay back that debt in dollars way up here. So their the value of their currency is way down here. They have to make up extra, they have to contribute extra currency to pay back this dollar denominated debt. But at the same time, they're heading into a recession. These countries are gonna get decimated. They're, we're gonna actually see the end of some fiat currencies and probably more than we're used to seeing. So I, I, I'm just kind of waiting for this big tidal wave of defaults to happen. 
on a sovereign level, which is incredible to think about. Also corporate level, lots of, there are lots of zombie companies. Uh, zombie companies are those that they can't even afford to pay their debt right now. And they've been relying on rolling over their debt, rolling over their debt during the good times when interest rates were low. As interest rates rise and banks start to clamp down and, and go into self-preservation mode, they're not gonna give more debt. They're not gonna borrow to these companies anymore those companies are going to go, uh, they're going to default. Uh, they're going to go belly up and go bankrupt. And uh, we have a lot of that coming uh, in the coming months and quarters. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's going to get much worse before it gets better. Wow. Um, I can't explain it that well. But yes, I agree, you know, based on what I'm seeing as well. Now, what Jeff, what worries me, though, is the disconnect between the political establishment and the, the the economic reality right it, it, it's like it, what they're doing is nonsensical again guys you know that we are you know we're super politically neutral on this show we believe that both political parties do the same thing when they get in power specifically in the united states they both print a crap ton of money right so don't because i know some people get you know they take it personally so that being said um the inflation reduction act man it it it, it it, they printed more money, but this it, it it isn't only happening in the United States. You saw it was a Reuters article that I saw one or two days ago. The same thing, Justin Trudeau. I swear to God, this is what it said. It said we we want another we want to print more. It was like a huge package to help the people on the bottom the most. When that's just going to exacerbate the problem. And I have a little clip from Joe Biden. It, it, uh, I can't describe this. It, this is just great TV. Okay, you're listening there to President Biden at the White House. He's celebrating the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. He says that he's been fighting Big Pharma for decades. Um, but there is this unfortunate split screen right now with the Dow taking a total beating down more than 1,200 points. And so it feels like uh, it's hard to be celebratory for some people in the crowd. That, that is, that's insane. Like that, that like... What are your thoughts on why is this happening, Dr. Ross? Is this just 50 years of this money printer has just made the all they I feel like all they know how to do is print? Well, clown world monetary policies lead to a clown world, right? I mean, and it, we have clown world politicians. We're seeing the final stages of this big Keynesian economic experiment that we've been on for many, many decades. This is we're in the we're in the end days. And I like to always caveat that I'm not saying we're days away, like literal days, but we're in the final stages of the Keynesian economic experiment. And this is what happens. You, you just have absolute like lunacy going on with our politicians. Obviously, they just want they want power, then they want to stay in power and they want to get reelected, right? And they'll do whatever it takes. So they just flat out lie. They either they're either really stupid or they're just totally lying to the public, right? You can't uh, create more debt spend more money and reduce inflation that way. That's just not how things work. And so uh, watching all of this in real time is really painful. The, the, what's crazy about it, though, is about half the population believes these politicians when they speak. And so it's very hard to change people. And it's very hard to get people to understand that what we really need is a stronger, sounder base money that you can't do this uh, sh uh, chicanery with, right? You can't just uh, print more of it. You can't just create endless amounts of debt. 
these credit-based systems, all they do is they make the upswings more and more and more prominent and more powerful. And then that means the busts are that much more powerful and devastating. And right now we're in the bust phase. And again, we're still kind of early days of the bust phase. It's going to get much worse. And this is what happens when you have a credit-based economic system and the whole world is going to go through it and it's going to be painful. It's And at, at at some point, all of this is fantastic marketing for Bitcoin and what Bitcoin is. It's why I just am convinced that Bitcoin is going to win eventually. But it is going to be extremely ugly in the coming years as we get through this system. We're going to we're going to continue to see QE infinity. We're going to continue to see um, banks just making the good times better and better and better until they get so obnoxious and the bubbles get so huge that we have these deflationary busts again and people get wrecked. People commit suicide because they're out of work and they can't pay their bills. All this kind of stuff that goes on that's terrible to watch. Um, and they pretend like they don't have anything to do with it, which is just absolute nonsense as well. All of this is fantastic marketing for Bitcoin, for a sound money that's perfectly scarce that you can't just print more of. Um, you know that We're going to have not a credit-based system, but more of an equity-based system. It just creates a better world all around, a more stable world for sure. Um, it's, uh, I, I'm very much looking forward to it, but I'm not looking forward to the process of getting there. It's going to be a better world for our kids and grandkids, but it's going to be kind of a tough go of it for us in the meantime. Oh man. I, and I, I agree. Um, but I know what a lot of people are thinking and I think that this tweet perfectly encompasses it. Let me share it. You said a gentle reminder that Bitcoin serves not as a hedge against price inflation, but against monetary inflation. This is frequently confused among both professional and retail investors when liquidity diminishes bitcoin generally falls and when liquidity expands it rises so what does that mean dr ross see this happen all the time it's a mistake that people make even smart people even bitcoiners who understand bitcoin have, and have been in this space longer than i have they say this and this gets thrown around basically on the you know financial media all the time Bitcoin is a hedge against inflation. And then they show, you know, they show the CPI rising and they show in, uh, Bitcoin going down. They're like, you said it was a hedge against inflation. And oh, they're both going, you know, it's going down and I'm getting poorer. What's going on? And so I tell people like there are two kinds of inflation and it gets um, misconstrued all of the time in popular media, especially in financial media. So CNBC does this all the time. Bloomberg does this all the time. Wall Street Journal does this all the time. Financial Times does this all the time. There are, there's a difference. There's price inflation and there's monetary inflation. Monetary inflation is basically the same as currency debasement. So what's happening is, is there's getting more and more of the monetary base is getting produced faster than the, uh, the economy of the world is increasing. So, and we can keep it US focused. So more and more dollars and debt and credit get created uh, faster than the rate of economic growth. When that happens, you get debasement of your currency. That's different than price inflation. Price inflation is the good, the cost of goods and services that we buy is going up, right? So the higher the number of inflation, the, the, the more expensive our gas is getting, the more expensive our groceries are getting, the more expensive education, healthcare, blah, 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 is getting. So we get that. But the problem is, is people misconstrue those two things. So Bitcoin, literally because of its monetary policy of having a fixed, perfectly scarce supply, where you get a new block of Bitcoin every 10 minutes or so. Um, and we know exactly that there's only gonna be 21 million ever uh, Bitcoin. That's exactly the opposite of the current fiat system, which has no intrinsic value. It only has value by decree. It can be created, this credit can be created and increased 
to infinity. So as it gets created to infinity, the value of each individual dollar approaches zero mathematically over time. It's literally exact opposite of what Bitcoin does. So that monetary inflation is what Bitcoin hedges against. So that's what we have to be really um, careful to discuss with people and how, how we can educate people. It is a perfect hedge against monetary inflation of fiat monetary inflation. But it's not the same thing as price inflation. Price inflation is is driven by usually by um, short term, like geopolitical issues, by supply sided issues, by when you get direct transfer payments from the government to people's bank accounts like we had back in 2020 and 2021 post COVID. If you just do that and you just create money and put it into their bank accounts, of course, the cost of goods is going to increase. We're seeing that right now. And then on top of that, the, the world was crippled because of not COVID. It was crippled because of the response to COVID and the government shuts down, shutdowns that basically, you know, hammered businesses, hammered individuals, closed the ports. Um, they have all of these supply-sided issues that we're still dealing with. Some of them, by the way, when we can get into that, but there are, there's so many different um, things that we can get into. But those things lead to high price inflation. That doesn't have anything to do with monetary inflation or monetary debasement. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, but so that's what Bitcoin does. When you hear people talking about that, you can explain to them the difference that there's price inflation, which you're probably talking about, CNBC, and there's monetary inflation or debasement of currency. This is what Bitcoin hedges against, not necessarily this. Why do you think people confuse the two? What, why? Why? Even even CNBC. I've, I've made the mistake myself in the past. Right. So why? Why is it? Why? Why do people get confused? And then one and I'm going to tie in another question with this. Right. Is why is Bitcoin still it, it, it's it clearly is dependent or it clearly the price action of Bitcoin, at least in the short term, is affected by the money printer. It is it is affected by central bank policy. So would it couldn't you make that argument, uh, Dr. Ross, that it kind of defeats the purpose? Sure. So so how how does it work? They are connected over the long run. So it's very similar to investing in stocks. When you think about stocks, and that's the world I come from, you think about the intrinsic value of a company and the cash flows and the future cash flows that a company creates versus what is the, the price in the market today. So Charlie Munger actually said it best, right? In the short term, the stock market is a voting machine. And in the long term, it's a weighing machine. It's exactly the same with inflation. Price inflation and monetary inflation actually converge over the very long run. So as you have monetary debasement, monetary inflation, over time, prices will go up and up and up and up, and they converge in the long run. But in the short run, this price inflation is a voting machine. It's it's based on geopolitical events. It's based on narratives. It's based on supply chain issues. It's based on you know direct transfer payments from the government. Um, so, but but that doesn't that's a different effect than because the price of Bitcoin is also a voting machine in the short term. It goes up and down. It goes up and down. If people are scared, they sell it. Right? They hedge against it. They do all this kind of stuff. In the long run, the intrinsic value value meets up with this other side and they converge. But in the short run, they basically are random and have nothing to do with each other. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So the other component of the question, maybe I bunched too many questions at the same time. Um, it's still Bitcoin's price action is still behaving. It, Bitcoin's price, just, just to say it bluntly, is still affected by central bank policy and couldn't you make the argument that that defeats the purpose? So, so Bitcoin's price is a great example. It kind of goes to about what we're talking about. 
in the short term, Bitcoin price goes up and down. It's super volatile, right? It's been a, it's been performing terribly in 2022. It's um, it's 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 susceptible to the whims of this recession of liquidity. So liquidity is drying up. It's contracting throughout the world. So it's getting withdrawn from Bitcoin and 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 basically put into the U.S. dollar. In the long run, though, right? That's what people always say: zoom out, zoom out, zoom out. Why do they say zoom out? Because if you zoom out, all it does is go up and to the right just like monetary expansion is going up and to the right with fiat currencies. So in the long run, it's a, it's an amazing hedge against monetary inflation, against the debasement of currency and the expansion of the money supply. But in the short run, again, it's a voting machine. I like to say, by the way, for people who don't quite get it still, Bitcoin is the world's best savings technology store of value. It's literally the greatest money that's ever been created. And I don't think we'll ever create a better money. It took like 6,000 years to make a better money than gold. That's because we're in the digital age now. Um, uh, in the long run, that's going to be reflected in the price. And we've already seen that be reflected in the price. But in the short run, we're still in price discovery phase. Um, people's Bitcoin has not even come close to achieving its value as the world's reserve currency, the world's reserve asset. Um, we're, I mean, we're literally um, at least a hundredfold away from that. And so that's still going to take time to get to that, that point. And in the meantime, it's going to be exceedingly volatile. It's still going to be treated like a tech stock. It's still going to get treated like a crypto for people who don't understand the difference between Bitcoin and those other things. Uh, that's why we have a ton of education to do. I would say at best, maybe 1% of the world's population understands what Bitcoin is. And I actually think that's being generous. Um, so we're very, very early on the adoption phase and the understanding phase phase of what Bitcoin is. We still have to go through this phase of the S-curve and up to here before the majority of the world um, is using it and understands what it is, that it's a sounder money. You're muted. So, Dr. Ross, um, you said something about price discovery, and I'm just, I'm interested, how long do you think that will take? And I agree. I think that on the very, I still talk to my normie friends and they're still talking about normal thing like just like oh this is what i went to on vacation you know i went to europe i went to this and they're like how are you doing and i'm like and it's like it's like as if you're a soldier you know in this weird information war because the kinetic thing isn't i mean at least not yet right uh isn't really happening so it's more of a narrative war and every day man it's crazy and then you see the other side whether it's a government or the imf or the UN or, you know, the, the, the evil villain, the World Economic Forum, they're fighting you. They're fighting you in this kind of narrative control, right? And then you fight back, you do this. This is a war. This is a war for all the marbles, right? At the end of the day. Um, how long is this price discovery going to take? I think a while still. I still think we're five years at the earliest away from where where Bitcoin, the price discovery gets to be more in line with its intrinsic value and its use case. Um, maybe 10 years, maybe 15 years. It just It's all about education in my mind. And so uh, I also think, by the way, that during a recession, none of it matters. Like people are not willing to take risk. Uh, they're not willing to do anything but be hyper conservative. Um, banks are not lending, so they're not expanding credit. They're not expanding the monetary supply. Uh, when that expands, the price of Bitcoin expands alongside of it. 
again, going back to what we're talking about, monetary inflation, um, when it's contracting like it is right now, and it has been since um, the uh, late uh, 2021, um, it, it gets sucked out of all risk assets in general. And again, Bitcoin is being treated like a risk asset. It's still in price discovery phase. Um, it's not until the education level gets to be a, like at least a large minority of people who understand that Bitcoin is just better money and they start transferring their purchasing power into it. Maybe it's half of the world's population. So maybe we're talking 4 billion, 5 billion people need to understand what Bitcoin is and that it's better money. We're going to get there eventually, um, but it's going to take some time. I mean, this it's just, it's just how it is. It's just like the, you know, hyper-internetization, I like to say, uh, just like hyper-Bitcoinization. Hyper-internetization way back in the 90s and early 2000s happened under everybody's nose, noses. And only a few people in Silicon Valley and around the world actually understood where it was going. Most people like me were totally oblivious to it. I thought, you know, email's cool, I guess. Uh, but I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of limited use case. Like I'm never going to like give my credit card uh, to anybody online. I don't really trust internet companies. Seems like kind of a scam, a lot of shady business going on there. And it wasn't until like kind of 2000, like kind of the mid 2000s were like, oh, this thing is actually legit and it's actually taking over the world. And we're at, and then, you know, 2010 ish, we're seeing, we're seeing the Amazonification of the, of the United States, uh, where literally, you know, brick and mortar retail businesses are getting shut down because people just like the convenience of e-commerce. Um, that same stuff is happening with Bitcoin. It's literally expanding right under our noses. People are using it. People are opening, you know, Bitcoin, uh, you know, accounts. They're starting to use it as a saving vehicle. Uh, most people still use it as a speculation vehicle, but some people are starting to use it as a savings vehicle. It's happening right under everyone's noses. Uh, and at some point it's just going to be like, oh my gosh, like, this has been here this whole time and I thought it was going to go away, but it's actually kind of taking over the world, this parallel financial system. And so at that point, it's going to be very easy to use. We're going to be able to use it in any store that we want to, you know, the lightning network and other layer two and layer three technologies are going to be much more expanded. The infrastructure will be much more built out at that point, be very easy to use. And at that point, it's just going to be kind of a no brainer. Um, we're also going to be to that the point where people, you don't have to be like we are now, right? Like the kind of the founders of Bitcoin. Like there were people in the 1990s that literally like they could tell you how the internet works. Like they could program stuff. They could, they could tell you about routers and switches and things like that. That's kind of how we are. We're in that sort of geeky techno phase still of Bitcoin. At some point, all it is going to be, it's just going to be for the, for the rest of the world. It's going to be, it's just, a, it's just this money that we use. It took over. I don't know why, but now I just use Bitcoin for everything. You know, I, I, I trade, um, and buy buy and sell things and sats um, don't really think much about it don't really get how it works don't really care um, that's the phase we're going to get to but it's probably 5 10 15 years down the road from now yeah no and man when, when you paint it out that way uh, it makes me incredibly bullish Good. it's hard to see now here's the big difference that i see dr ross right the internet disintermediated information and that was already kind of a big deal for governments right but like i said earlier this is for all the marbles right this is disintermediating money right and money the ability to just create money out of thin air for governments gives them a tremendous amount of power right so is that something that worries you? And again, this is something that just because of the nature of Simply Bitcoin and we're kind of a new show, we have to cover it and we, we see the the nation state, right? The the state fighting back in its ways. Michael Saylor sued MicroStrategy. What does MicroStrategy have to do with Mike? 
sued coincidentally on the same month that the U.S. Treasury uh, placed sanctions on open source software for the first time in its history. So does that worry you at all? Um, I was talking to Max and Stacy earlier on today, and they're like, you guys should just move to El Salvador. It, are, are we going to be economic refugees? You know how people sneak into the U.S. today, right, to seek economic opportunity. Are Bitcoiners eventually going to have to go someplace else? Man, I got like three huge tangents I want to go on from here. So I'll try to hopefully I can remember them. So so um, first of all, you keep alluding to they're, they're basically fighting us, right? And I think you're referring to that old adage. First, they ignore you. Then they laugh at you. Then they fight you. And then you win. And so we're in phase three right now, right? We're starting the then they fight you phase. Uh, and this is where it gets kind of rough. And so you really have to know what it is you believe and understand uh, because because the U.S. is not going to want to give up their uh, authority and power that they have because they control the money supply uh, willingly or easily. People, pe They're going to fight this for sure. So we're in the then they fight you stage. I'm convinced we're going to get to the stage four, which is then we win. Uh, but it's not going to be without a lot of uh, trial and despair along the way. So you got to know what you believe uh, and think about Bitcoin. Second, I've tweeted about this for several years, it, basically starting in 2019 when I first started to understand Bitcoin. I, and I, start my, I started my tweets like this, money is power, right? So whoever controls money and the production of money has ultimate power. The United States has had ultimate power basically in this world since basically World War II. We've been the world's reserve currency and then even more power once we got it off the gold standard because now there was nothing hindering us from just printing it to oblivion, creating as much credit as we want to, basically printing energy, right? We could print, we could borrow money, create credit and get oil basically for free. Um, and that system is, is, is it had its heyday and now we're on the decline of that. Basically, we're so over leveraged, we're so indebted right now um, we're kind of stuck and we're in the and the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. They've sort of painted themselves into this uh, unrecoverable corner. Um, whoever controls the money has the power. So what Bitcoin does is it removes that power, which is centrally located in these huge nation states. So that that's what um, caused the uh, immense increase in the size and scope of nation states. So all of these countries that can print their own money, you know, the U.S. is the primary benefactor. China, uh, uh, the European Union, um, uh, Britain, uh, Japan, other countries that, that are like that, they this whole nation state power where they can control and create money, that has already, I think, reached its apex and it's on the decline. They're not happy about that. They're going to be fighting this. What does Bitcoin do? It literally takes that centralized power that creates these massive nation states and it spreads it out to the people. So the nation states are going to hate it. The people are going to love it because now the people will suddenly have a piece of that power. Um, I, I tell people, people think I'm like kind of joking about this. I think this is as serious, if not more serious than the founding of the United States. I think that the Constitution uh, and, and the Declaration of Independence, uh, those are kind of like what the, the phase we're in right now. It's with all of these really bright people and these incredible minds that see this chance to free ourselves from this sort of enslavement to these powerful nation states and their kind of financial and monetary repression. And we can actually get out from under it. Like this is our chance to get out from under it. Bitcoin provides that chance. 
Um, and it's pretty amazing. And it literally is going to go down in history as as important as a separation of church and state um, as the creation of, of the United States of America, which I, I would say is probably the biggest, uh, you know, geopolitical event in history. Um, and then and now we have this Bitcoin in separating money from state. So it's huge. Um, the nation states are absolutely going to fight us. Right. China just flat out just said, hey, you're out. You're, we, we ban miners. Uh, you can't own Bitcoin. Get out. Um, the United States may do something like that. I think there's going to be lots of little wars along the way. But on the other side of this, again, we're going to have successfully completed this separation of money and state. The power is going to come away from these uh, super powerful nation states. It's literally, literally going to defund them. So talk about you want to you want to vote politicians out of office. Forget about the ballot. Buy Bitcoin. You literally are defunding United States politicians if you buy Bitcoin. You're you're defunding uh, the U.S. dollar and you're increasing the purchasing power of Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, somebody, uh, the Bitcoin dragon. Good word. A peaceful monetary revolution. That's literally what's going to happen. It's a chance to have a an absolute worldwide revolution without kinetic warfare. I'm all about it. I'm here for it. I'm ready to fight. Uh, and I say fight like I'm, I'm I want to peacefully fight. Right. I want to create a better world for my kids and my grandkids. And this is our chance to do it. It's 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 I can't I can't emphasize enough how important this is and how serious this is. And that's why I get so discouraged when people spend their time talking about is Bitcoin better than Ethereum. Ethereum has nothing to do with any of this. Like quit talking about Ethereum. Quit talking about crypto. This has changed the world technology. This is separate money from state technology. It's going to revolutionize the world and create a better place for our kids and our grandkids. That's why I spend my days blathering on and on about it. Amazing. And you said something about China, right? And you said that, you know, they banned it. What what they really did is that the CCP banned themselves. There was actually data that came out today that China still is in the top 20 or top 10 nations with Bitcoin adoption. And when the, you know, the mining ban happened, I remember texting one of my friends from the mainland. I said, hey, like, you know, his name is, I call him Tommy. He said, Tommy, like, you know, like, aren't you worried? He's like, he's like, no, Nico, you know, obviously he had an accent. I'm not going to try to do that right now. But he said, no, Nico. Again, it's a universal thing. He said, no, Nico, what 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 doesn't kill the honey badger makes it stronger. And I'm like, holy crap, they say that over that, too. <laughs> and then a CNNBC article by Mackenzie Segal, she does a great job, came out two or three months later. And it said 20 percent of the hash rate still estimated to be in China. <laughs> I saw that too. So talk about strong incentives. Now, I want to talk about something. Well, I have this first question for you, then we're going to go to the second. But Dr. Roth, what is this new world going to look like where these powerful nation states aren't, you know, politics takes center stage? You know, we I think we just lived through that in the last two or three years with the whole, you know, however you feel about it politically, it's still I my point still stands, right? The whole Biden and Trump and the whole thing. The, holy crap. Like I'm I'm forget it's like reality TV show every single day. But it's not because there's a lot at stake, right? What is this new world gonna look like that it, the 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 democratic vote isn't going to have the power it once had because your ability to coerce you know, under the justification that it was democratic, right? Your ability to coerce individuals is going to be greatly diminished. What is that world going to look like in your eyes? 
Well, first of all, it's going to be very different. And I don't think people really understand how different it's going to be. I think if people want to get a taste of this, I haven't even finished the book, but I read most of it. It's called The Sovereign Individual. I'm sure you've read it too. I think that's more like what we're going to see. We're going to see just a massive shift in how the world works and operates. And instead of having these hugely powerful nation states, like we've we've reached peak powerful nation state level, and now that's on the decline. And I think what's going to happen is it's going to get spread out. The power is going to get spread out. That also means responsibility is going to get spread out. I'm just telling you, there's people who don't like that. There are people who like being taken care of. They want to be told what to do. We know we call them the sheeple affectionately um, uh, in the Bitcoin community, but you have to be willing to take responsibility for things like governance. You know, if, if you control the money, you control the power. That means you need to start thinking about governance and those kind of issues. It's just going to be a much more decentralized world, but we're all going to be connected again digitally. So the Internet's not going away. That's only going to increase and expand in our lives. We have this new magical uh, you know, Internet money called Bitcoin that's going to be ubiquitous through throughout this system as well. It's just going to be a very different world. There's going to be, you know, so there's going to be pros and cons. I don't like to create it uh, or to paint the picture like it's going to be a utopia. There's still going to be humans involved and we're still going to screw things up, right? And humans are sinners and we're stupid and we do dumb things. And, and there's just bad people out there that, you know, there's people who kill people and who steal and lie. All of those people are still going to be there, but it's just going to be a totally different form and function. So it's a great question. I don't know the answer. It's to me, again, it's kind of like asking, like, what is where is the Internet going to be? Uh, the year's 1995, where's the, where's the internet going to be in 25 years? It's almost like you can't even think of it because it's going to open up whole new worlds and whole new categories, um, that I, I can't even think of as of yet, but I do know it's going to be less centralized power, more distributed power regulations. You know, all that authority is going to be distributed more. How do we deal with that as a human society? I'm not totally sure, but it will look very different. And and we're going to be, and one other thing I'm confident about 50 years from now, 100 years from now, we're going to look back and say, this was the transition point. Like this is when we transitioned from the analog age to the digital age uh, and from analog money to digital money um, called Bitcoin. Uh, and it's going to be a very pronounced shift. Uh, and we're just going to know that that's um, it's going to be super obvious in the future. But right now we're living through it. So it doesn't look that obvious to most people. Yeah, no, I, I I 100% agree. That book I've read three times. Um, I think it's a must-read book, and the fact that he accurate they it's two people accurately predicted so many things is just absolutely mind blowing. And it's just because they just used well, the theory of violence, right? Just the logic of violence, and I right. think it's so appropriate. Now, you you touched on my 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 question that I was going to ask you, which is. The cons, right? Um, with greater decentralization, you know, uh, less ability for a government to effectively redistribute wealth. And, and you know, again, if depends how you look at it, politically speaking. Um, in this new world, it, that is going to be, you know, it's not like they do the wealth redistribution effectively. They take the majority for themselves, but it's still effective in the sense that it does kind of level the plank not really but um definitely better than the world that we're going into unless you make the argument that prosperity is 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 gonna be so great that even someone on the you know extremely lower end of the economic spectrum is still gonna benefit tremendously that they might not even care you could make that argument um the question you touched upon that but the question that i have for you right is 
why do people, and I think that the last two years were such a great and powerful example of that, and it blows my mind, right? How are people still seeking solutions from government, um, even though there's been at least a hundred something years of clear examples that interventionism, wealth redistribution, you know, uh, the the this idea that you can implement equality onto a society that requires a tremendous amount of coercion. It's like it, people are so blind to it. Is this a matter of propaganda, lack of education, or is it the thing that you said earlier, Dr. Ross, right? You buried the lead, which is just some people like to be governed, right? So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, all of the above, if I can, you know, I mean, uh, and th so not to sound crass or mean, but, you know, there's a lot of just not super smart people out there, right? For everybody who has an IQ above 100, there's another person with an IQ below 100. Uh, for everybody who wants to be independent and responsible for their own actions, there are people who want to be dependent and not responsible for their own actions. For everybody who wants to er work hard and uh, make a good life for themselves and their family, there's someone else who wants to play video games and get checks from the government. And there's that's just how it is. And so those people aren't going to necessarily change fundamentally. So, so that's one issue. The second issue is that... Um, it's so funny. I just lost my train of thought. There, there's there's lots of issues like that though that we have to think through, right? And so so somebody asked in the in the um in the chat like what what about you know what about people who need help? Like I think what's going to happen is charity. Uh, Z Logic brought this up, and I agree. Uh, if that's what he's saying, I think that um, charities are going to make a comeback. People just helping their neighbors are going to make a comeback instead of like everybody going on the government dole, uh, instead of having government redistribution. By the way, there are still going to be rich people and there's still going to be poor people. It's just a different type of rich people and poor people. The people who got rich are going to be people who basically work hard and then transfer their work units into Bitcoin, into money that stores their value, their purchasing power over space and time, instead of the people who are financially savvy right now, these are the people who are rich. So these are the people, by the way, who hate Bitcoin. It's the people who benefit from the current fiat system, the credit-based system, politicians, uh, investment bankers and, and bankers in general, uh, lots of investors, Wall Streeters, these type of people, you know, the Cantillon effect, they benefit from the, the um, expansion of the credit system, of the monetary expansion. They don't like this other system as much. It's almost hard to fathom, by the way, how are other, how's, it, how's the world going to change in other ways? We have this credit-based system right now. Think about what you want to do if you want to buy a house. What do you do? You go to a bank, you apply for a mortgage. If your credit score is good enough, if you have a decent job, you can get a mortgage to buy a house of X amount of value, right? What's going to happen on the Bitcoin standard is that people are not going to be taking loans out to buy houses anymore. They're literally just going to work and save up their Bitcoin and then buy a house with their savings. Today, it's almost impossible to imagine because we think about, man, a house right now, like a house that I look at that's even decent and where I live, you got to have $500,000. I don't have $500,000. That would take me 50 years to make that much money. That's what a lot of people would think. That's the beauty of the Bitcoin system is what's going to happen as assets are going to quit being uh, speculative stores of value, like real estate has become an investment class. It's going to go back to just being shelter for people. If you need a house, the cost of this house in Bitcoin terms is going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper until it reaches a level that the average man and woman can save up 
and buy their own house or build their own house. Uh, and it's actually affordable. So all of these people that use these asset classes as vehicles to make money, businesses, stocks, they're all going to come down. They're all going to get repriced in Bitcoin terms and get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper until regular people can afford to simply just put money into a, a business as an equity investment or buy a house because I need shelter. And it's not going to be something that's totally beyond the means. Like right now, housing is absolutely beyond the means of millennials and Gen Zers for the most part. They can't afford a $500,000 house, you know, working at, you know, Chick-fil-A or wherever they're working. Even if they have a decent job, if they live in a big city, it's it's you know, $700,000 for a house, they can't, there's no way they can afford that. And that's because the system is so distorted. And why is the system so distorted? Because the money is so distorted. It's this clown world economic and financial system that we're in. That's all going to literally come crashing down. And that purchasing power is going to get moved over to here. All of these things that are just at these just insane, you know, bubble type values are going to come way, 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 way down to the point where if you're over on this Bitcoin system, they're totally affordable. We're going to move from a credit-based system to an equity-based system. It's almost impossible to imagine right now because prices are so high and nobody can imagine being able to actually just buy a house with your savings. That's the system we're moving to. Uh, and it's going to be awesome. Uh, but again, I say I say it's going to be awesome. There are going to be people who won't like it. People who love to get free money, who love to um, you know not work hard. Um, they're they're actually going to get kind of left behind, um, and they're not going to have the government to back them up and to save them like we do currently. It's going to be a whole different world. So um, I'm excited about it. But there are reasons for other people to be concerned about it. Yeah. And, and you were in what you were talking about was and Parker Lewis wrote an amazing article and the name of the article is The Great Definancialization. And the argument that he was making, Doc, was that, you know, how the world works today. Right. You were touching upon this. Right. If you're a plumber or a dentist, make good money. Right. You're forced to become a part time investor, outsource that responsibility to these giant Frankenstein uh, investment banker, which, by the way, uh, terrible service anyways um yeah so how th that changes the entire financial industry it completely guts it in a way um absolutely whereas and you 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 know you were the you were the head ahead of a hedge fund or you are the head of a hedge fund how do you feel about that i love it and i tell people and i'm not even kidding i'm educating people to go to transfer over to this system that will someday replace me and take away the complete need for to your point people yeah you know, so why do you, why do people use investment advisors why do they spend their time thinking about their 401ks and how to invest in stocks and bonds and currencies and real estate and all this stuff it's because we have this fiat currency that's depreciating at such a quick rate that you can't count on that savings to provide for you and your family long into the future. So people have to become master investors. And if they can't become a master investors, they hire somebody like me to do the master investing for them, right? They're looking for somebody who can like make good gains, who can generate great returns, who can help preserve their purchasing power for themselves and for their family and for their kids and their grandkids for years and years to come. And in the current system, that's extremely difficult to do. And that's why Wall Street exists. That's why mutual funds and why investment advisors and financial planners and hedge fund managers even exist. Someday on this Bitcoin standard, we're going to have a money that actually preserves and protects and appreciates your purchasing power over time so that you don't need to do all of these desperate things. You can still do these things if you want to, 
Um, but you, people are going to be much more selective because they're going to be like, eh, you know, I have this Bitcoin that's increasing X, you know, percent every year in uh, because it's this totally scarce uh, monetary supply that the world uses. I don't think I want to put it into Starbucks or Apple or, you know, I don't think I want to buy bonds with it. And I don't think I'm going to speculate in real estate in that. And because of that, all of these things are going to get repriced lower and lower and lower and lower. And they'll be worth investing in again someday. Some businesses will still be worth investing in. And I actually believe that businesses 10, 20, 30 years down the road, good businesses that we're very selective on will actually outperform Bitcoin uh, down the road, but that's down the road. We're, we're not to that point. We're still in price discovery phase for Bitcoin. So it's still going to appreciate, I think, much faster than stocks, bonds, real estate, all these other asset classes do. So hopefully that makes sense. But what I'm educating people to do is to not ever need a person like me ever again. Like you, tr once you get, once you get it, once you've been orange pilled and you understand Bitcoin and that it's the greatest savings technology that's ever been created and that it's it appreciates your purchasing power over time and space. Um, you won't need people like me. So I'm going to be out of business probably five or 10 or 15 years from now. And I'm perfectly fine with that. I, I'm, I'm happy to help people along the way. And, uh, and if it puts me out of business sooner, that's great. So, and I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I, you know, of course, you know, we have different people that, you know, we're trying to orange pill that we're trying to convert. Um, definitely I'm on the younger side. I've been doing this for six years, man. Um, so like, you know, just, trying to orange pe uh, orange pill people but what I've ran into recently is older gentlemen wealthier people and these are people that weren't treated badly by the uh, the legacy system um, and those are people that are that are in my experience have been the hardest to convert and of course, you're kind of under you're you're it's it's a time thing because you want them to, you know, they buy Bitcoin today. It's like buying 2018, right? Um, so I don't want to be in this position where three, four years from now, it's like then that's when they listen because number go up is the best convincer. You tell someone, you wait a couple of years, and they're like, I remember that one time. Holy crap! I should have listened to you. What do you recommend? What what has been the most effective way for you to? pitch people on Bitcoin and pitch your clients really on Bitcoin and actually convince them what has been the best selling point because they don't care about having money in a bank. Like they, they believe it. That's okay. Right. They're not militant. Like, you know, Opti and I, the millennial generation, we're like bank, like, no, like I'm taking self custody. How do you convince those people? Yeah, that's a great question. It really depends on kind of the life station of people. It depends where you know where they're at, how wealthy are they or not? Are do they are they based in the U.S. or are they in some other country? So based on all of those different things, you have to decide how to approach people. Most people that I come into contact through Valeshare, right? I run an investment advisory service. I run a hedge fund. I tend to hang out and talk to a lot of very wealthy individuals in general. So when we're talking about the advantages of Bitcoin, we're talking about risk adjusted returns over time. Um, you know, they, they don't like it that Bitcoin is down over 70% from its recent highs, you know, back in uh, late 2021. But they understand when you look back far enough that it still has just an incredible sharp ratio, meaning risk adjusted returns are still kind of off the charts. So um, I, I tell people like, you know what, if you want to uh, enjoy the benefits from an investment perspective in your portfolio, it's good to have a good chunk of your portfolio in Bitcoin 
be aware of the volatility, but over the long run will drastically outperform all of these other asset classes. I do it a little bit differently at Veilshar. I have a long-term trading system that I actually just officially put into place and have done some uh, iterations on. But as of kind of mid-June, I have my final iteration. It's it's up and running, uh, and and we're doing great. What does it do? It basically, you know, it, it treats it based on momentum. When it's when when assets are in a bearish trend, uh, we're out of it or shorting things. When when it goes back into a bullish trend, we buy in right now. So just looking today, right now, my buy into price for Bitcoin for our fund, where we go in size uh, or come back in in size, would be around uh, twenty two thousand five hundred dollars or so. Um, uh, so in the meantime, we're just uh, in the meantime, we're sort of sitting on the sidelines waiting for this bottom to occur. That's how I talk to these kind of people as like an investment strategy. It's very different from how I talk to maybe people who aren't, who, you know, don't have a lot of money. What I talk to like friends uh, and family members who maybe are struggling financially, I'll start it out with like, well, they, they usually bring it up like, man, I just can't believe how big my grocery bill is. Like it's literally up like $200 more, uh, you know, this week than it was uh, a year ago. And, and like utilities are just crazy. Like they're so expensive now, like what's going on? I'll, I'll use that to talk about what is inflation, you know, and why do we have inflation and talk about, you know, monetary expansion and, and you know, the government as they create more and more and more of this money. Uh, and even these transfer payments that happen because a lot of these guys receive payments following COVID, right? They got checks in their bank. It's literally a direct result from this is now prices are higher because of that. So wouldn't it be nice if we had a money that didn't cause inflation that was actually disinflationary? Imagine if you had a money where instead of life getting more and more and more expensive year after year after your life actually got cheaper year after year. Like we can't even imagine that all of us who have been, you know, you know, whether you're five years old or 80 years old, we've been in a system where inflation is just the norm. Where I look back when I was a kid and a Snickers bar and a vending machine was 25 cents. Now that same Snickers bar is smaller in size and it's like a buck 50. You know, that's inflation. And we all have grown up with that as being normal. But on a Bitcoin standard, I'll talk about we actually would be in a system where prices for food for gas for healthcare, for education would get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over time where we'd get more value for our money over time that's what bitcoin has to offer and then the third thing and i'll just do that real quickly if you're in some sort of developing nation where you have kind of crony go govern governing officials running controlling the monetary supply these guys literally default like argentina defaults on kind of a semi-regular basis um, these people have built up wealth they've worked hard and then they've only they've watched it literally go to dust just poof and they're gone and they have no more life savings anymore and they have to start from scratch and some of them have had to do that multiple times in their lives and those are the people who just intrinsically get the value of Bitcoin. They don't really care about Bitcoin's price volatility. They, you know, sure, it's down 70 percent this year because of this recession that's that's starting out. But they're like, but that's still way better than having a currency that hyperinflated away like the Turkish lira or, you know, pick, pick your pick your currency. That's just basically going going to zero uh, very quickly. Uh, it still is a much better alternative. And especially if you kind of back up and look over the long term perspective, you're preserving your purchasing power unlike what government fiat currencies do. So that's a super long-winded answer to say I, it depends on who I'm talking to, um, but I'll kind of focus my orange pill discussion based on kind of their station in life and what I think they'll grasp and understand. Absolutely. So we're, we're almost getting to the time, but I got a couple more questions based on what you were saying, uh, Doc. And it's this, and the first time this happened to me, I was, I forgot who I was pitching, but it was an older gentleman pretty successful and you know i i do my my usual nico jones bit like separate money from state like blah 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 
And he looks at me, and this was, this gave me a lot of information. He said, Nico, not the revolution, but the investment, right? So, and Doc, I think you know both. I think you're very well versed in both. How is it separating the two? How are you, how do you go with your clients and then keep that separate in your head so they're not looking at you like a crazy person? I think I've just generally been pretty good at reading my audience. And so it's, it's, that's really all it is. So when I talk to people who are into, you know, they're talking about end the fed and they talking about, you know, anarchy and they hate the government. And then that's when I'll go down that route. I'm like, Hey man, wouldn't it be awesome if we could literally not just vote these politicians out, but literally defund them permanently so that they don't have this power over us. This is what Bitcoin offers. It's literally the separation of money and state. It literally takes the power away from these super powerful nation states that just ruin and wreck our lives all the time. Uh, and it gives that power back to the people. So when I'm talking to people like that, I go down that route a lot. It just really depends on who you're talking to, right? And, and if you're talking to some rich dude that that is looking at Veilshire because they want to make a lot of money, um, I'll talk about the risk-adjusted returns. They don't really care about the. In fact, they probably don't want the separation of money from state. They, they'd be like, well, why would I do that? I'm super rich. You know, Warren Buffett doesn't want that because he's a billionaire. He's totally, you know, benefited from, uh, you know, the Cantillon effect and being close to the money printer and all this kind of stuff. So just got to read your audience. I know you, you know that too. You're a super smart dude. So that's what I do. Uh, there's lots of different ways to approach Bitcoin. It's so multifaceted. It's super simple on the one hand, but it's incredibly complex on the other hand uh you know you can talk about property rights uh that bitcoin offers you it instantly confers property rights to the to eight billion citizens in the world uh unlike other governments that just take your property away from you or unlike the u.s which taxes you on your property um you know and so so anyways just depends on who i'm talking to i you can kind of go down any route and when we've been in this space long enough you can kind of read the situation read the person and then and then go down that path with them absolutely um okay Last question, and I'm going to start asking the same question to, you know, future guests of this new format. What is the difference between Bitcoin and shitcoins, and why does it matter? Okay, so back, so full circle, where are we? So, so at the beginning of the discussion, and and I'll bring it back to say there are two types, and I, I like to use altcoins. I'm a family friendly guy, so altcoins, two types, right? There's the there's the ones that are basically the Bitcoin spinoffs. Those are like the Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, BSV, Monero. Um, you know, the things that were more prominent back in kind of 2016, 2017. They were kind of battling against Bitcoin to be the world's magic internet money. And then there's all of the rest of what I could just call crypto, which is basically technology, multifunctional technology platforms uh, that are basically, you know, venture capitalists glom onto them. Uh, they're awkwardly glued to a blockchain, even though they don't need a blockchain necessarily. Uh, they're focused on exit strategies. What's the difference? There's not a lot of difference between Bitcoin and Litecoin and Bitcoin and BCH and Bitcoin and BSV and Bitcoin and Monero and all that. They have slight different unique properties, but the market has clearly chosen Bitcoin. That's why I chose Bitcoin is because the market has made it clear that there's a front runner, that it's Bitcoin, that the properties of Bitcoin, that the fact that it can be totally distributed, that nodes are easy to run, um, that the power gets disseminated over time, decentralized over time instead of centralized like these other protocols do. Market, the market has chosen Bitcoin. All of this other stuff has nothing to do with Bitcoin. When we talk about um, 
dominance of Bitcoin relative to crypto, that's a false narrative. It's like comparing the sun to a mosquito. It doesn't matter. They have nothing to do with each other. Quit talking about crypto. Don't go in rooms where they're comparing Bitcoin to Ethereum because Ethereum has nothing to do with Bitcoin. Ethereum is going to go away. It. I, I want to tell people this too. People talk about the flipping. What if Bitcoin was flipped by Ethereum and market cap? It doesn't matter. It does not matter. They have nothing to do with each other. It's like saying, what if Apple, the company, flips Bitcoin? It already has. Who cares? There's nothing to do. You know, it doesn't matter. They don't have anything to do with each other. Ethereum is just a little um, tech company. Um, it should be proof of stake because that's shareholder friendly. Um, it is an unregistered security. So it should just register as a security because it's just a tech company that's kind of distributed around to people that's getting more centralized over time. It doesn't matter to Bitcoiners. So sorry about that answer. But again, they have nothing to do with each other. Focus on what's important. Focus on world changing technology. Focus on separating money from state and uh, you'll do well over time. Uh, I absolutely agree with you and the reason i i ended with that question is because um everyone depending on their expertise and what what walks of life they come from is going to answer that question differently and i think it's appropriate for the very end anyways uh dr ross i really enjoyed this um like i said it looks like it's doing pretty well as also so i'm gonna keep doing these types of interviews no prep. It's not. I don't prep the way that I use for the show. Um, the show requires a tremendous amount of prep, a uh, tremendous amount of research. This is more of a conversation, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, Doc, thank you for coming to uh, the first uh, interview, man. I, I really, really enjoyed this. Thanks for having me, Nico. You do a great job with the interview, so I really hope you do more of these. Uh, you have a, you know, you're always a self-deprecating, uh, self-effacing, but you're actually, you know, you you have a ton of knowledge across all different aspects of finance, uh, economics, uh, monetary history, and especially Bitcoin. So, I mean, you're a great host, and uh, I look forward to watching your interviews in the future. And anytime you want me back, I'm happy to come back and join your show. I really, really appreciate you saying that, Doc. Um, where could people find you on social media? What are you working on nowadays? Sure. So I'm always on Twitter at Valeshire Cap. I'm always, you know, doing a space or tweeting some nonsense about something, you know, tweeting something about Bitcoin. So um, love, love talking about this stuff. Love talking about investing. Love helping the plebs. And I'm totally serious about this. Like I, I want to, uh, you know, defund Wall Street as well and put people like me out of business so that we get onto a Bitcoin standard. So come find me over on Twitter if you want to know in the meantime. So say you're, you know, you're into Bitcoin, but you're not 100% fully into Bitcoin yet. I look at Valeshire, my business as Vailshire as a bridge between uh, you know no coiners who become bitcoiners all the way over to being full bitcoiners 100%. So for those people in the middle that's what Vailshire does. I still invest in stocks and bonds and uh, manage uh, IRAs for people and brokerage accounts. If you want to learn more about that and what I do uh, as an investor, you can email me directly info@vailshire.com and I'll get back to you personally. Awesome. All right guys. Thank you so much. And of course, we'll see you tomorrow for the regular show. Bye, everybody.